podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Endon. I won't uh, lie to you. This is about the sixth attempt we've made to start recording. There might be a slight uh, technical issue this week. Michael McMullen is there, hopefully, and hopefully he will still be there throughout. But we've just had a few problems with the connection. But uh, you can hear me now, yeah? Yeah, absolutely fine. This might be the time it works. Let's hope so. Well, uh, this week, we're going to be uh, making some wild predictions about the identity of the top 16 qualifiers for the Crucible, or rather the 16 who are going to play the top 16. Qualifying, of course, starts next week in Sheffield. Uh, and we'll also have some emails. But first, of course, I suppose the big news of uh, the week has been out of China. Um, it's been announced that there will be no international sporting events in China for the rest of the year, the ongoing coronavirus issue of course and that includes at least three planned snooker tournaments because the actual calendar for next season hadn't been hadn't been released but we expected Shanghai Masters the China Championship um, and the International Championship possibly the World Open as well so three or four tournaments there that were supposed to be before Christmas are not going to be now this ties into an email I've had from Ben Donnell who writes uh, while it may be a bit premature given how the current season is still to conclude what are your informed thoughts on where and when Next season will get underway with the news that apparently professional international sporting events are to be forbidden in China for the foreseeable future. Do you feel this may lead to a wholesale rejigging of the calendar? What do you consider the prospects to be for other established tournaments in the UK and mainland Europe over the months to come, given the uncertainty as to second waves of COVID-19 and the resumption of large indoor events in front of audiences? Well, Ben, I mean, I remember being at the Welsh Open, and this was in February, so this was before, you know, the coronavirus came to British shores. And I spoke to one of the WST executives there, and they were already planning then uh, preparations for next season, the coming season, in case they couldn't go to China. So it was already on their radar then. Of course, in the meantime, things seemed to have changed, and it, in, in many ways, it looked like China actually got it under control, and it was more a Europe, become more of a European problem in terms of snooker. This is what I expect to happen. I think they, they're going to try and put tournaments on in the UK. So I already, of course, norm, in normal circumstances, the three home nations events are on before Christmas, the English, Northern Ireland, Scottish Opens. I th- think it's very likely the Welsh Open will move forward to be before Christmas. You could also do that potentially with the European Masters. You know, we are still in Europe. I think you could actually play that in Britain. Um, and maybe even the first event of the Coral Series, the World Grand Prix. I mean, the thing about that is obviously it's top 32 on the one-year list, so you need a certain number of tournaments. Add in, of course, Champion of Champions and UK Championship. That's actually a lot of snooker to be played before Christmas. And, of course, what they want to do next year, if it is possible to go back to China, is to leave a nice hole, say, a month or so, six weeks, to potentially play three tournaments in a row. So, you know, things are changing, aren't they, by the day, by the week. And there's a lot of planning going on and a lot of contingencies, but I think that, that will happen. And I think what actually it means is that I think one of the weaknesses of our sport has actually become a strength. I think one of the weaknesses is actually that it's so British dominated. But actually in this particular climate and this sort of global emergency, in terms of getting tournaments on, it could be a help because it could be that you just get a raft of them in Britain and then in the new year after the Masters and I guess the German Masters, it's off to China if they will allow us in. There's been nothing official on this and, you know, we're waiting for next season's calendar, but that would be my uh, analysis of it. Yeah, you know, what you say there, I mean, that's absolutely true. You look at, you know, Wimbledon, gone by the wayside, the Open Championship, which would have been on this week, actually, on exactly the same way. And it's because they can't get the fields together because they're so international. Now, 
players who aren't from Britain, most of them are based in Britain in snooker. So that's why we're able to have a viable world championship. And the scenario you've outlined there, which probably is what we're looking at at the moment, it's basically turning the season inside out because we've been used to this in recent years. We start off with mostly China in the early part of the season, and then it becomes very UK dominated in the second half of the season. What we're looking at 2020 to 21 is the other way around. But it's like everything. It's everything that you plan is completely provisional. Even this foreign world championship is provisional at the moment. And as you alluded to last week, it could start and not even necessarily finish. So that's the situation we're in at the moment. And I think there's a lot of assumption being made about things that if they get called off this year, well, we'll next year. But that may not necessarily be the case. You look at, say, for example, something like the Masters Golf, which was supposed to be on in April been scheduled for November there's an assumption that be back on in April next year but the way things are heading in the United States at the moment you can't really assume that at all so all that can be done by WST is get a calendar out make it inspirational and even if they do get the events on in the slots they're planning to there's no way of knowing whether or not there'll be any sort of crowd in I mean you think the Masters Alexander Palace it's so much about the crowd you could plan it for January, plan to have a crowd there, sell tickets, and really perhaps not even know until a week beforehand whether or not there'll be anywhere anyone able to come in and watch it at all. So await with interest some sort of a calendar, which I imagine at the latest will come out sort of by the end of August. Uh, and then, you know, you, you have to be fair to WSB. There's only so much they can plan because they just can't rely on anything at the moment. No, much much like uh, our internet, uh, I got most of that. You you cut out a little bit. It may be hopefully when people hear it back, it'll be fine. But if not, I apologise. Mm. This this is not a new situation for us. Although the last few weeks have been okay, but anyway, it's kind of tradition. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you're saying. And uh, of course, the shootout I didn't mention. But I mean, there's, there's literally. I mean, I know not everyone likes that in bed anyway. But there's literally no point having that at all if there's no crowd because the whole thing is. He's based around a crowd. Um, we just don't know. I mean, there's talk, talks of second waves. We just don't know. I mean, obviously, we all hope he's not, he's not going to come, but uh, we're going to see, obviously, in the, in the next few months. Anyway, we're going to get on with the rest of the emails. The first one is from Hugh O'Donnell. This is about the World Championship. Hugh says, I have to take issue with the snooker experts that say Ding is the best player never to win the World Championship. Jimmy White is hands down the best never to win it. The old saying, you can only beat what's there at the time, springs to mind. But the fact that Jimmy has been to the one-table setup on 10 occasions, six finals, four semifinals, is impressive. Ding has reached the one-table setup on three occasions, two semis and a final. Jimmy could have and maybe should have retired at least 10 years ago. His last visit to the Crucible was 2006. For that reason, I think Jimmy's career has been insignificant as regards winning the World Championship for the last 15 years. Can anyone see Ding's Crucible record coming close to that? I certainly can't. Ding has been around for 16 years now. Ronnie hasn't been to the semi-final the last six years, which is unbelievable for the best player ever to pick up a cue, all the while producing some of the best snooker during that period. Just goes to show how difficult it is. Anyway, I'd love to see Jimmy win one. I would have loved to have seen Jimmy win one. I hope Ding does in the future. But I'm not sure Ding has the appetite for it. I hope I'm wrong. Well, there's a couple of things to say here, Hugh. First of all, mentioned, I think, last week, Ding, the fact Ding's come over from China made a special effort to come suggest he is motivated this year. The other thing to say is we did discuss this not so long ago, a few weeks ago, and I think we agreed that Jimmy is definitely top of that list. I mean, Jimmy White, at least two years, should have, should have won it, no doubt about it. So for me, he is, he is top of the list. I know other people have said other things, though. Yeah, I have to say, I've never heard anyone say that Ding was the best player in ever in the World Championship. Maybe it has been said, but it's it's not a widely held at all. There's no real discussion about it. And I suppose, saying before, it depends what you're basing it on. Are you saying 
the best player overall who hasn't won the World Championship? Or are you saying the player who's done in the World Championship without ever actually winning it? And if it's the latter category, there's not even a conversation to be had there. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, ab- absolutely. If, if there's a, a, a air as to who's the best player never to have won it, Jimmy is definitely the answer. Can you imagine, though, what it would be like if, if it had happened, because you, you remember 2004, thereabouts, he was starting to play really well again, mm. but never really thought he was going to win it. But just the enormity of what it would have been like in the Crucible and in Sheffield that night, if he had finally won it, you know, long after anyone had expected him to. But as you say there, 2006 was the last time he was there. I think it was uh, David Gray knocked him out in the, mm. uh, in the first round. And uh, of course, he's long gone from the circle. Jimmy's still around. John Bennett is our next correspondent. Uh, you, you know, you, you, if you come to this podcast for niche, then this will appeal to you. John says, just to follow on, for, just to follow on from Roger Bales winning Michael's cousin's 64-man home tournament. Now, I'm not even going to begin to explain any of that. If you weren't listening last week, you missed out. But uh, yeah, uh, he said, I know you mentioned he won a pairs event with Clive Everton. He also won the 1983 Autumn Open at Pontins Prestatyn, beating Gary Filtner 7-0 in the final. Talking of Roger winning a bus driver's tournament, <laughs> we, we are literally, the, I mean, there's thousands of podcasts in the world, okay? We are literally the only podcast in the world right now talking about Roger Bales. Right? This is this is a badge of honour. This is what killed off the World Snooker podcast. Yeah. Uh, they, they didn't have Roger Bales. Um, yes, talking of Roger winning a bus driver's tournament, got me thinking of you and Henderson winning the police snooker championships a few times. Oh, yeah. Got me thinking what players are doing now. I'll start off with a very unusual one. Scottish professional Jim Donnelly, who was the first Scot to play in the World Championship at the Crucible, 1982, became an aerobics teacher. And although I'm not sure if he still does this, he was certainly still teaching aerobics into his 60s. Well, of course, the, 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 the brutal fact is a lot of the pros who didn't sort of become world champion and didn't get TV work and, and all the rest of it had to go and get other jobs. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a, it's a very honest thing to do. The one people always ask about, of course, is Tony Mio, because he's probably the, the big 80s star that didn't sort of go into the media. And uh, people always uh, people always ask what he's doing. And what he's doing is he, he runs a very successful uh, sort of jewellery, watch and jewellery company in London, I believe. Jimmy's still in contact with him. Um, so that's what he's doing. But let us know if you were uh, out there, if you know of any other uh, snooker players in the wild, as it were. Well, you mentioned the Scottish professional there, Jim Donnelly. Uh, Murdo McLeod, first mm. Scott ever to win a match at the Crucible back in 1987. One of the first conversations I ever had with Phil, which I think gave me an indication of what I was going to be putting with from him over the next 20 years or so. Was, there was a discussion in the press room at a tournament about what some of these guys were doing now. And, Phil mentioned that Murdo was baker. Now, Q, what seemed like eternity of uh, puns about, you know, needing the dough and all the rest of it. And I always remember he, he got a bit where he, he, I think he actually may have stood up to say, and he retired from snooker because his game was going stale. And he <laughs> collapsed into absolute, you know, mountains and rivers of laughter at 10 minutes afterwards, which I have to say was solo laughter. No one else was joining in with it. But uh, yeah, I mean, th- that is the th- not like other sports, you, you know, where you've reached any kind of level of, of fame in the game, probably made enough money out of it to not work again. Of course, some players don't look after their money in other sports, but certainly snooker players at that time could be quite high profile and actually ranked maybe 30 or 40 in the world, but maybe not really have earned a massive amount out of the game. So a lot of players of that era would have gone on and done other things. And it's always fascinating to hear what they are. 
Yeah, Myrna McLeod, his, his, his shop actually got broken into recently, um, but they, they, they caught the guy. He got done with baking and entering, so that's, uh, that's that oh, one. Yeah. That's, uh, that was one of the ones Phil made 20 years ago. I really, I really hope that the connection cut out there and people didn't have to hear that. Anyway, we move on. We move on. Steve Hooley. He says, thank you for all the... Thank you all for providing a fantastic and interesting distraction during lockdown. I'm, re- I'm a regular listener and I've always enjoyed the content, including Michael's terrible gags. How about that? Oh boy. A few yeah. more of them there for you. Yeah. He says, I was very surprised by the Q&As that Stephen Hendry's done during lockdown. What, with his reputation of being distant and aloof, he was the last person I would have thought of to take this job on. Thank God he did. They were unmissable viewing for any snooker fan. Fascinating insight into the world of the snooker elite. But having seen most of them now, it proves how similar in life we all are, watching Netflix, bad haircuts, etc. Another quick point, at the Tour Championship recently, they cut to Judd Trump on the practice table before his first match. Jill Douglas was saying how everyone had travelled in alone and were isolated from everyone outside the venue. However, picking balls out of the pockets was Jack, Judd's brother. Can you shed any light on this? Well, yes, Steve. Basically, uh, it was the case at the Championship League that players had to come alone, and it was changed for the Tour Championship, although it wasn't very widely publicised, which is, I guess, why Jill didn't know. In fact, I didn't know until I saw Jack at the venue. Um, so players were allowed to take one guest each. Uh, Judd took Jack. Mark Allen brought a friend of his. I think everyone else actually did come alone, though. So that's why you saw Jack there. Uh, and on the Henry thing, yeah, he did these uh, Instagram lives um, yeah, I, mean, I suppose once upon a time he would have been an unlikely person to do that because at one stage he didn't want to talk to anybody, because certainly not the media when he when he got beat. Um, but uh, I was thinking about that. You know, there's probably only two people who could have pulled it off, him and Steve Davis, because the players all respect Hendry and Davis. There's other players, even you know, well-known champions who might not have been able to arrange it. But if Hendry and Davis ring you up and say, listen, I'm doing this 8 o'clock Thursday can, can you come on? You're going to say yes, aren't you? And, and he did them well. And they were. It was just good to have a couple of sort of, you know, ch- uh, players chatting away. And uh, yeah, it proved very popular. And they are, I believe, on YouTube if uh, if people haven't seen them, so they can go back, uh, can go back and watch them. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, you, people talk about Stephen being distant and aloof, and maybe the thing was said about the other man you mentioned there, Steve Davis, and his heyday. Guys like that, and Nick Faldo is someone from another sport to say the same. They say, look, I'm not at tournaments to make. I'm not at tournaments to join in all the banter, as it would be described today. I'm there to beat these guys in tournaments. And if by not speaking to them, not mixing with them, I can develop more of an aura around myself and give myself that little bit of an edge, that can be a further advantage in trying to beat them. So that's what those guys did at the time. As much as anything, it was an act they put on. And, you know, those of us who spend any sort of time around Eve in particular and also Stephen in recent times, they're actually pretty down to earth. And, you know, now they're not playing anymore, even more so. Well, definitely. I mean, they don't have the pressure of having to keep up that sort of front of being the, you know, the champion. And when Davis started losing, he definitely relaxed uh, tournaments. Anyway, uh, we continue. Scott McCarter, regular correspondent. He said, I turned 22 on the 14th of July, which was yet, which was yesterday as we record this. Um a day before Melbourne Inman. In fact, uh, he's his birthday today as we record this on the 15th of July. Melbourne Inman won the first ever match in the World Championship, 1926, beat Tom Newman. Uh, anyway, uh, he says, I emailed detailing my, my so far one and only visit to the Crucible in 2012. Dad and I arrived and went to the Winter Gardens. The BBC afternoon transmission was ending and afterwards Ken Doherty came over. I was asking him what it, what it was like to win the World Championship in 1997. Perceiving my youth, I was 13 at the time, Ken retorted in a jocular manner, surely you were not born. I said, correct, but I was born the next year when you were beaten the final. 
<laughs> it's nice of you, Scott. Despite having no vivid, despite having no vivid memory firsthand of the cruise before 2010, I put the World Championships of 98 and 99 as two of the top editions of the World Championship ever played. He says, thanks for everything. As a soon-to-be 22-year-old, well, he is now because it's birthday yesterday. I enjoy, I enjoy your obscure cultural references. Well, to be fair, Scott, they're, I mean, if you're 22, they're probably all going to be obscure. Um, but uh, but thank you. Yeah, we I mean, we don't know anything that's happened in the last 22 years, so. Definitely not. I mean, yeah, to be fair, they were great tournaments. The one John won in 98, uh, he played fantastically. And, of course, 99 was a great event, which ended in a historic win for Stephen Hendry. So and they were the two world championships that I I did as World Snooker Press Officer as well. Um, they've got a special yeah, place in, in snooker history for that. I was going to note, isn't it sobering that we're getting communication there from someone who wasn't even born when you and I worked at the World Championship? I know, yeah. It's, uh, if I wasn't on a podcast, I'd take a moment to consider that, but we must plough on. Uh, James Cook is our correspondent in America, um, driving around, having, having a, a great time by the sounds of it, and sending pictures just to let me know how, how great a time he's having. <laughs> he says, great greetings from Idaho Falls, Idaho, where the COVID Refugees US Tour finds itself this week. He said, me and the family listened to the latest podcast on the drive. Everyone in the car enjoyed the listen. They might not enjoy this week's by the, by the way it's going with the, with the, with the Wi-Fi. And, and he said, and of course, the mention of my previous email. After you graciously compared me to Tony Knowles, the wife, of course, asked me who he is. I could only say he's a snooker star from Bolton, lest comparisons be made by her between him and I about his colourful off-the-table exploits. Probably quite wise, I would say, James. He said, I enjoyed the Crucible Curse discussion and the debate about how best to measure ranking titles. I quite like the percentage win idea alongside the absolute number of wins. They use this in other sports. The one that springs to mind is cricket with batting and bowling averages, as well as total wickets and runs to enable objective comparisons. So it could be done, in my opinion. I'd be interested in your thoughts on adding a stat average break to perhaps encourage players to clear the table once past the winning post in a frame. Might be hardly impossible to do, but perhaps doable for the current season. Could even be a prize the highest average break for the season. Well, it's interesting you say that, James, because in Southport, um, the Players' Championship, there was a discussion in the media room there about coming up with the equivalent of, say, the three-dart average in darts and, you know, averages in cricket and other sports that you mentioned. And the, the discussion was ongoing. And I think it was Phil Seymour, the MC, who actually came up with the idea of the average break. Um, and someone said, well, how, you know, how on earth could you possibly work, work out what it is? Within about 20 minutes, uh, Geraint from Sport Radar, who's uh, one of the unsung heroes backstage, had basically printed yeah. off this printed off this season's average breaks. He just put something in the computer, and out it came. And I think Ronnie O'Sullivan was top of it, which suggests it's, it's actually a stat that you know has some has some merit to it. I think that the thing with these things is you know they're always kind of interesting to have, but that's all they really are. They don't affect anything on the table. It's just interesting background. A lot of people really like stats. A lot of people don't have no interest in them at all. But it might be something that you know could be, could be developed possibly in the future. Yeah, I, I'm not so sure about that stat. I, I was there. Actually, I remember on the day of the final, uh, Roddy from World Snoop showed me that list, and there were. So, I know Ronnie was top of really strange anomalies in it that made you think, well, you know, what does this even mean if this player is that high on the list, this other player is that low? And I mean, I think there's a bit too much talk about breaks because I know that obviously the game is built around them, but you know, a, a decent like clearance from the third last red is. Oh, if a lot of the balls are awkward, is maybe you know a better achievement than a 70 or an 80. So I'm not really sure what you read into it. Some of the stats, and there's so many of them now, things like 
safety success and long pot and all the rest of it. There's only so far you can take them, but they do tell you something about a player's strengths and weaknesses and how they played in a particular match. So stats like that have a place, but the average thing, it's, it's just a matter of opinion. It's not something I'm particularly keen on. Here's the great anomaly with the pot success. It seems, you know, a credible thing if, if it's 99%. That sounds brilliant. But it doesn't account for running out of position, which is obviously a key part of how a break can go wrong. It's not just missing. It's actually losing position and then having to play safe. I've done matches where I've done matches where players are high pot success and they haven't really made any breaks. They've, they potted the balls they've gone for but they've been in and, and lost position. So maybe, I think they did try positional success at one point, but the, the danger is you just overload people with, it, with all this stuff. Anyway, uh, the, things for the for the things for the things geeks to think about. Uh, we have an email here from Germany. Exactly. We have an email here from Germany, Christian Thomas Berger. He says, I'm from Germany, and I write this before listening to the podcast because I wanted to tell you my original thoughts, of which there are two on this subject. The first thought is, if the World Championship hadn't, hadn't been held then I think World Snooker would still have advertised Judd Trump as the reigning champion. So he would have retained the title but not defended it. So the curse question couldn't have been decided here, really, because some say the curse says the first-time winner is unable to defend the title, and others say the curse says he's unable to retain it. I think the thing about that, Christian, is you'd be pretty cursed not to play the tournament at all, never mind the the traditional curse that that we discussed last week. Uh, And he says the second thought is if the World Championship had been held at another venue, like Neil Fold suggested, maybe Berlin, which would have made me really happy, obviously, then I would like to ask you, if Trump had won it there, would he have broken the curse? The question is here, is the curse in fact related related to the Crucible building or to the Crucible era? I think it's rather related to the building. And he would have lost the title, not won at the, alter- at the alternative venue. Would this be in favour of the saying the curse is real? Still, yes, if you relate the curse to the era, but no, if you're related to the building, because it would then have happened at another venue, which would mean the curse isn't real because it wasn't related to the crucible. Yes, we have time in our hands, he says, but, well, indeed we do, uh, Christian. Well, I mean, there's a lot of ifs and buts in that, isn't there? The, 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 Neil Folds uh, did, did suggest Berlin. He was, he was asked you know, if it could go anywhere else. And the Temper Drum's a great venue. But the issue is very simple. That the, the World Championship has to be staged in Sheffield. They have the contract for it. So they get, if, if it was not possible for them, if they, if they literally said, look, we can't put it on, um, then potentially could go somewhere else. Here's the thing no one noticed, though. When the deal was done, I think, was it 2016, 2017, when the deal was done, the 10-year deal? It, the deal wasn't for the Crucible. The deal was for Sheffield. And no one yes. sort of picked. No one sort of picked up on this. So they they could actually stage it. Say the Crucible was out of bounds. They could actually stage it somewhere else in Sheffield. Um, but as it stands at the moment, it's going ahead at the Crucible. We talked about the curse last week, and we kind of decided it's not a curse. But I think the Crucible curse. It, the clue is in the name. It's got to be at the Crucible, isn't it? Look, it's not a. It's not even that good a stats outlining last week. Not many players have won at the Crucible more than once at all. Very few have retained it. I just I don't even think it's that good a stat. So to call curse as well, I mean here's a cultural reference young Anne will get. It's beginning to sound like an episode of Scooby Doo, you know, where Shaggy <laughs> and Thelma and the guy secretly solve the curse of the crucible. I mean I just really hope actually Judd Trump does win it so we don't have to we'd have to put up with a lot of it for a few days. The curse of the crucible finally broken. But then we'd never hear about it again. Um but yeah, I suppose it would have been interesting if they had moved it. But here's the thing: I didn't hear Neil suggesting that. What, why, why, why was he suggesting Berlin? Any particular reason? Well, I just think because it's a great venue, um, and they certainly have. They, you know, in normal circumstances, they would have an audience. You'd, you'd pretty much fill it. Um, but it would be to me like the whole. 
I mean, I've, I've only ever known the World Championship at the Crucible. And yeah. the whole the whole format and the whole feel of it is suited there. I think if we just picked up that format and put it somewhere else, it wouldn't be the same. It, the Crucible is a massive part of the World Championship, the whole arena uh, and the whole rest of it. So uh, although the Temper Drums are a great venue, I mean, Ali Carter said of it at, at Alexandra Palace, didn't he? Well, no, that's again, it's a different venue. It's perfect for the Masters, the World Championship. Is is a crucible tournament, and that's not to say, you know, obviously, twenty years time it'll be held there. We just don't know. But it, so much of what people think of the tournament is related to the venue. It's not just who wins and who loses. Well, what, what was the thing someone said years ago? The crucible is as synonymous with snooker as Wembley is with tennis. So uh, <laughs> slight, slight, <laughs> slightly wrong on that. But yeah, look, you you move the world champion out of the crucible, not going to be the same event anymore, and people will realise after a few days of the first year of it being somewhere else. The Crucible is so much a part of it all. Um, and, you know, the, the, it leaves there. It's not the same event anymore. Next, about next email is from Dave O'Neill, who's cutting right to the heart of the big issues here. He says, why has there never been any clamour for the return of Big Break? I mean, Bullseye has stayed in the public consciousness and we've seen recent rehashes of that, but no Big Break. Are the BBC missing a trip there? I'd love to say I'm writing this from some exciting far-flung destination, like some other recent listeners. But unfortunately, I'm originally from the West Midlands and now living in the Northeast. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, Dave. I'm from the West Midlands. Um, Big Break, just to explain uh, to people who don't know, was a, a popular game show on British TV. It ran for, I guess, about 10 years. It used to be on sort of Saturday tea time. A nice little show, very simple show. It was a quiz, and you had members of the public and three members of the public each partnered a snooker player, you could win prizes. Uh, the prizes now would look ridiculous, uh, you know, by modern standards where basic shows all seem to give away large cash prizes. But um, it was a nice little show. It got snooker players on. Uh, John Virgo, was uh, he, he was one of the co-hosts. But this made me actually wonder what happened to the other presenter, Jim Davidson, who was a big star on, the, on, on British television for a long time. He, he presented the Generation Game, which was another big show, and had his own stand-up shows and whatever. Um, and the answer is he's now got his own YouTube channel. And I, I looked it up the other day. and my, Well, my goodness. I mean, if you talk about reduced circumstances... It's basically like it's basically like a sort of a sort of well I, I'm not going to pull any punches a ranting a ranting loon basically he sits there dissecting the, the issues of the day through his own prism which is a very right wing one and uh, and for a stand up comedian he doesn't I mean I only watched a couple of them but for a stand up comedian he seems to have lost his sense of humour completely about everything so if they did bring it back I think they would need a new host the problem is I know what would happen if he came back. They would think, well, we can't just do it straight like we did before. We'd have to make it sort of ironic and, and edgy and arch and all that. And, and they'd just ruin it, probably. Yeah, there probably, yeah. the probably, the probably wouldn't be any snooker in it. That, that's the modern way of doing things, isn't it? It'd come back and it'd be sort of, let's do it in an ironic way rather than just properly. It was a big show in its time. Uh, a lot of people enjoyed it. I don't see any prospect of it returning, to be honest. No. And I, the other thing as well, it wouldn't just be the simple format of answering questions and potting snooker balls. You know, it would be bonus points for getting the most reads on Twittergram or whatever and <laughs> people would be saying oh well you know this is reaching out to increasing diverse audiences across all platforms and it mm. wouldn't be a simple old show that it used to be the other problem is if they bring back Big Break they'd probably want to give ranking points because of course we do have another game show nowadays it's called The Shout there we go a little, little dig there um, <laughs> uh, okay so and now uh, our last email before we get on to our predictions for the qualifiers is of course from Dave Tyndall, 
Um, so oh, Dave, yeah. just to bring everyone up to speed, Dave's been playing basically fantasy tournaments on his own table, and he's been playing the current World Championship. Now, last week in our cliffhanger, um, we got up to the quarterfinals. So he says, um, he says, last week I got to the last date of my parallel universe World Championship. The quarterfinal lineup was Yan Bing Tao versus Karen Wilson, Dave Gilbert versus Jack Lazowski, Stuart Bingham versus Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Selby versus Neil Robertson. Okay, so an update. In the top half, Karen Wilson came from four down with five to play to beat Yan Bing Tao, and Jack Lazowski defeated Dave Gilbert. In the bottom half, Stuart Bingham knocked out a subdued Ronnie O'Sullivan, and Neil Robertson won an entertaining encounter with Mark Selby. In the semis, Lazowski froze, and Karen Wilson dominated from the start to reach the first, his first final. And he was joined there by Neil Robertson, who won a high-scoring contest against Bingham. The thing about this is, what everything you just said there, you could actually see happening. Anyway, he says... Uh, he says, to make good of my promise of ordering a curly blonde David Gower, Henry off neighbour's wig, if Robertson went all the way, the final will be played this week. So you see, he's keeping us in suspense. He's playing the final this week. Then again, with hairdressers reopening, part of me thinks Robertson may have had his original barnet restored. So now I could be misrepresenting him. Talking of Robins, Robertson, I've been doing some research on winners trends at the Crucible. And there are some interesting findings. He says, looking at the last 10 winners, seven of the 10 were in their 30s. Eight had already reached a Crucible final. Seven had already won a ranking tournament earlier that season. Uh, nine were seeded in the top 10. If I apply, apply those filters to this year's field, the three left standing are Robertson, Selby and Sean Murphy. All are in the 30s. All have reached a final and all have won it. In fact, all three have won a ranking event this season. They're all seeded in the top 10. So is fate guiding us towards Neil Robertson as the, as the Aussie Southpaw now looks ideally placed to pull off an unprecedented double by winning both my Daft 6x3 version and the World Championship itself. It would certainly be a unique double, wouldn't it? Um, now, here's the thing. Next week, um, all being well, it won't, it, I'll be actually doing a slightly different version of the podcast because I'm at the qualifiers. I'm going to be interviewing, hopefully, the director of a new snooker-themed film. So that means we won't actually find out the winner of Dave's tournament now for two weeks. So that's that's what you call suspense. But uh, do, let us, do let us know. It's uh, Neil Robertson, yeah. Robertson Karen Wilson. Right. So if Kyron Wilson wins it, Dave will have to play another tournament to see whether he can break the curse of Dave Tyndall's house. <laughs> don't worry, don't think he won't, won't have thought of that. Anyway, um, onto the onto the real tournament. So a few weeks ago, we of course predicted our semi finalists, but it was based entirely on uh, the, the top sixteen because at that point the draw hadn't come out with the qualifiers in. Well, now the draw has come out. Now, uh, readers of the WST website, of which I'm sure there are many, will have seen that uh, they did a little thing this week asking, they called them experts, I was one of them, so make of that what you will, but experts to predict the 16 qualifiers. So we looked at the draw, it was myself, Phil Yates, uh, Neil Fault and Hector Nunns, I think were the four. So we just picked out the 16 names, and we're going to do exactly the same here. So obviously I've already made my choices, but Michael's going to do his yeah. as well. So we're going to start, obviously there's... Uh, Players come in at different stages. There's four rounds. Some players come in the first round, some the second, and everyone else in the third. The top section features the top seed in terms of the qualifiers. Joe Perry, there's Champeng Fei, Sonia Carney, and various others. I mean, I've gone for Perry. Uh, what, what about you? Same again. Um, I, I was looking at Sonia Carney there. I just have a feeling, you know, he might have a shot at it. But in the end, I think Perry... You know, he's he's got so much experience. I think that will count a lot in the end. So, yeah, I've gone for Perry as well. OK, next section, uh, the seeded players who come in the third, third round are Ryan Day and Hussain Vafaya. Of course, Ryan Day had a terrible season until Championship League. 
Uh, Hussein Bafai would be the first Iranian to play at the Crucible. And there's other players in there like Craig Stebbin, who's played there before, Jordan Brown, who's uh, practices with Mark Allen. My choice actually is Vafai in this section. Yeah, I'm going for him as well. He's a player who about a year or two ago we thought was you know, really making great strides. Hasn't quite built on it the way we would have expected to. But as you say, Day has really slipped a bit. He's actually below Vafai in the ranking now. So, yeah, could be the time for the first Iranian for him. Okay, the third section, there's there's a, an outside chance here that Peter Lyons could play Oliver Lyons' his son yes. in, the, in, the, in the final round, but we'll, we'll deal with that as yeah. and when. Um, there's Stuart Carrington there. He's played at the Crucible. Tom Ford, of course. Lu Hong Hao, of course, was whitewashed last year. Gerald Green as well in there. Um, personally, though, I can't really look past Tom Ford. I think he, he, he's a player who you just think should be higher up in their rankings. On his day, he's very, very good. Yeah, I agree entirely. Lu Hong Hao, another player, you know, he's in that section, but another player who hasn't kicked on, he thought he might, a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I agree with you, uh, Tom Ford, for that section. OK, well, I'm sure we're not going to agree on all of them, but uh, let's see uh, what what is occurring in the next section. So this is some real old stalwarts here. Ken Doherty, of course, former champion, trying to keep his tour card. But Mark King, Michael Holt, the shootout winner. Um, Tor Chan Leong as well and of course Julian Boyko the youngest ma- uh, player ever to play in the World Championship only 14 from Ukraine uh, my tip is Holty here in fact I think uh, the four of us when we did it on the website we only agreed actually on two on two names and I'm pretty sure Michael Holt was one of them but what, what say you? Yeah I mean that was my initial thought but the feeling Ian Burns has never played at the Crucible and he's someone who on his day really really well I mean Neil Robertson certainly found that to his cut at the Welsh a couple of seasons ago so uh, yeah my initial thought was Holty but I'm actually just going to go for Ian Burns just because I feel he's you know good enough player to play there at some stage and it hasn't happened for him yeah I mean I think the, the thing about the qualifiers is it, it, it's not I, I think and we'll see this next week if you watch it on Eurosport that it's not necessarily about playing well there. It's just about finding ways to win. You can save your form for the Crucible. It's a different sort of week. It's not, you know, you can pick out what you think are the best players, but actually match play and just sort of will to win are, are very important as well. I mean, I think Ian Burns have got that, but I'm going to stick with uh, I'm going to stick with Holty. Next section uh, features a former champion, Graham Dot, who's got a great record actually in qualifying. We've got Martin Gould in there as well. Chris Wakelin, who... Uh, Trump the distance a couple of years ago, David Grace, podcast listener. Uh, but despite that, David, I'm afraid I can't see past Graham Dot because he just always seems to qualify. Yeah, and the way they've set up the uh, the qualifiers this year, the players who are just outside the top 16 are playing, you know, well, are seeded to play in the final qualifying round. Players who are much lower down the rankings, that's the way it works. So, uh, yeah, completely agree with you. He's had a, a great revival the last couple of years. Really, really consistent, particularly getting through the early rounds of tournaments over the last year or so. So, uh, yeah, 2006 champion and uh, runner-up also a couple of times. I'm going for him. Next section features a twice runner-up, Matthew Stevens, former semi-finalist Ricky Walden, a man who's played at the Crucible but not in the World Championship. John Astley, of course, played in the, the Play the Nap. Yeah trying to get there for real, as it were. But my choice, actually, is I think if you look at all the players on tour, you could argue the best player never to play there is Mark Joyce. And I think it's about time he played there. So I'm going to go for Mark. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with your assessment of uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if he did manage to break that time. But I'm just 
going for Matthew Stevens. Maybe it's all those years and years of going to the Crucible every year, uh, not expecting much of Matthew Stevens because he hasn't had a great season, and then seeing him just turn it on for the World Championship. Whether or not that applies to the qualifying rounds, I don't know. But again, he's someone who, who's come back. He's had a little bit of a revival over the last couple of years. Uh, so I'm going to go for Stevens to get through. But I mean, I, I agree as well. It would be no surprise at all if, if Joyce was finally to get Next section features the man who's qualified the most times in terms of actually coming through the qualifiers. That's Mark Davis. He's qualified 10 times. Anthony McGill, former quarterfinalist, although he's fallen back a little bit since then. Of course, James Cahill, who had that great achievement last year, qualifying as an amateur, beat Ronnie O'Sullivan, very nearly beat Steve McGuire as well, lost in a decider. However, I'm actually going to go for him. It seems a bit of a left-field choice. My choice is Jack Jones. He seems to be vastly improved. He's had some good results, sort of slightly below the radar. And you always get players like this coming through. You know, you look at players who qualify, you think possibly they're not going to do much damage at the Crucible, but, you know, they can qualify. And I think he might fall into that category. It'd be a great achievement, obviously, for him to make his debut. Yeah, it's quite hard this section isn't it because Sam Baird I mean he's been to the Crucible performed well there he, he's in there he could uh, do some damage as you say James Cahill well I mean the top players will be hoping he doesn't qualify because he seems to raise his game so much when he's playing the very best so it's one open this one but I just have a feeling McGill might actually get through so I'm picking him yeah quite a few of the other guys uh, went along with that so so far I'm just looking down the list here we've got we've had seven players and we've agreed on four of them uh, the next, the next one, and this was the other one. I mentioned Holty on the on the website piece. This was the other one everyone agreed on, which is Tepchara Nu. Now he's in a section yeah. that include, includes Dominic Dale is uh, you know a very experienced player in that section. Liam Highfield who, who blows a little hot and cold. Lu Ning you know hasn't pulled up too many trees. You got to say Tepchara. I don't mean that I'm not speaking for you, but he's got to be the favourite certainly in that section. Massive favourite, and I, I agree. I think he will get through and I think it would be great if he did it's obviously fantastic to have as as international field as possible and uh, it's such such a great player to watch the style he has if he was to go in a run through the championship it would be great so yeah I'm going for a new as well okay so that's halfway down and uh, on the, the bottom half of the draw starts with of course someone who had that great run last year Gary Wilson got to the semi-finals and has a good season since as well you've got Daniel Wells in there trying to get there for the first time Andrew Higginson but actually, again, I'm, I'm sort of bucking the trend a little bit. A lot of people went for Wilson. And I understand why, but I think Gary, I mean, he's favourite definitely in the section, but he's under pressure to qualify. I mean, what happened last year, he, he must go there thinking, you know, I've got, I've got to get there again. And who knows, that might have an effect on him. The player I'm going for is someone I, I rate very highly, which is Alexander Ersenbacher, of course, Switzerland's only professional um, he, he again, he does blow hot and cold. He's very inconsistent, but he's sort of player. I could see getting on a run, and he, he seems very confident in himself. If he could start playing well there, you know, he could he could possibly get to the crucible. I agree with what you're saying about him. The, the times I've seen him play and wondered why he hasn't gone on to do much more. And I all agree with what you say about Gary Wilson because you know you, you mentioned his name. That's what people think of. It's that great run he had. Uh, last year and I also agree that I think he may put a bit much pressure on himself he's very very hard on himself he always is uh, we saw that particularly after he was in the semis last year that he wasn't giving himself a great deal of credit for it but still just because he's a really really good player who's found a bit more consistency in the last 12 to 18 months I'm going to go for Garrison yeah I think all the others actually did as well so it's another slight deviation from uh 
what I said, which is good. Next section, um, we've got in the final, the seeded players who were supposed to meet each other, the Minister of Defence, Martin O'Donnell, and Ben Wollaston. Of course, they both they both showed a bit of form at the uh, the Championship League. Elliot Slesser's in there, Mike Dunn as well. Uh, I like the look of O'Donnell, actually. I think he's got a good attitude. I know he, he got criticised a bit for pace of his play in the Championship League, but he's a hard worker. He's a sort of player who you could see winning a really long best of 19, sort of 10-9 to get through. Yeah, it's again the open section, and you even look at the guys coming in first round, uh, the likes of Andrew Paget, but Lily maybe asking a, a bit much to actually make it through the four rounds and qualify, but see them doing some damage along the way. It's a really, really call this one though between O'Donnell and Wollaston. I'm just going to go for Wollaston. I think he's only been there once, uh, but I just fancy him to uh, to get through. Okay, the next section. Uh, Nop and Senkarm and Lou Hyerson are the seeded players. Both played at the Crucible before. As, of course, is Nigel Bond, former runner-up. Mm. We've got Ed and Sharaf in there. And a player I'm going to tip, uh, someone who's been out of form, but, you know, there's always flashes when you see him play that you think, surely, if he could just get it back together again, Michael White. Now, in a way, it's it's a bit of a bold choice because tour survival is an issue for him as well. He's a bag of nerves at the best of times, but he's a player, yeah. I think, he's one of these natural players, if he can get a bit of momentum going, you know, you could see him You could see him coming through. Very talented player. Lest we forget, he was a quarter-finalist at the World Championship. That's right. I'm going to go for him as well, actually. Very hard to pick this section. Um, I think it's very open. Duhai Shang could get through. Again, some of those who hasn't kicked on, like a lot of the Chinese players, actually. Um, uh, the way we expected them to. Sankam, player on his day, but doesn't have enough days. Uh, I'm going to go for White. And if you, we're, you're mentioning bombs there, this year, it's uh, the 20th anniversary of his run to the final. Yeah, and of course, 95 when he got to the final, that was the last time the Crucible stage started on a Friday. So if, he, if he's looking for omens, maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. You've got to get there first, of course. though. I didn't know what you said there, but anyway. Uh, okay, we continue. Next section, Next section, possibly the most interesting, looking at the names here. We've got Anthony Hamilton, Crucible Stalwart. Scott Donaldson played there last year. Of course, won the year's first Championship League, his first uh, pro title. Harvey Chandler showed a bit of form at the Championship League. Sam Craigie as well played well there. We've got Rayanne Evans there, the 12 times Women's World Champion. Andy Hicks, former semi-finalist. Jackson Page, highly rated young Welsh player. So a lot of interesting names there. I'm going to give the nod. I think a lot of people were looking at Craigie. I'm going to give the nod to Scott Donaldson. I think, uh, I know he wasn't too happy with how he played there last year. He played Kyron at the Crucible, but he, he did well to qualify and he has improved since. And I think, you know, he's, I think he's beat Ding three times any of this season. So he, he's someone who, I'm not sure he's someone you'd want to play at the Crucible. He's very dogged. You know, he can graft out wins, which is important in long matches. So yeah, I'm give, going to give it to Scott. Yeah, I'm going to do the same. But again, a lot of players in there. You, well, Andy Hicks, of course, like Nigel Bond, it was 25 years on from his best crucible. The year he was the semifinals, that was 95 as well. Jackson Payne, interesting, you know, because there aren't many players you look at who are starting in the first round who you think might have a sniff of getting through. Now, we're waiting for Payne to really explode into his full potential. Now, it's likely to happen here as anywhere else particularly as it's not the normal best of 19 all the way he through a few best of 11s. So he's one of the very few players coming in from round one who I would give any sort of chance uh, to get through. But I do think in the end, Donaldson is a player who has improved a huge amount uh, the last while and ultimately you have to pick him, really. 
Yeah, I'm sure at least one player will come through from the first round, as you say, but it's, it's picking them. But uh, yeah, Scott Donaldson, yeah. Uh, Scott Donaldson, I think certainly over best in 19, I'd fancy. Next section, we've mentioned him already, Jimmy White, six times world, uh, six times runner-up in the World Championship, I should say. Uh, world Senior Champion and uh, ever favourite. Um, Michael Giorgio, who narrowly failed to be whitewashed last year, he, he won uh, Frank 10 against Neil Robertson. Robert Milkins, the Milkman, stalwart at the Crucible, Jimmy Robertson, of course, uh, ranking event winner in the last couple of years. So, again, interesting names there. I think very often at the Crucible, uh, in terms of qualifiers, experience does tell. And Robert Milkins has got a good record of qualifying, so I'm going to give it him. Yeah, you know, you look at this section, and the highest-ranked player in it by distance is Jimmy Robertson. But it's a bit of a false looking for him. He's got a lot of points to come off in the not-too-distant future. So I think this is a real opportunity, actually, for someone lower down the rankings to, to go through this section. And for that reason, I'm going to go for Ashley Carty. Interesting. I think Neil Falls on the website went for the Chinese player, Si Juahi. Uh, he's the kid who beat Bingham uh, at the English Open earlier in the season. Yeah. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting if if, uh, if that were to happen. Uh, I should say that we, the, we did a few years ago, about four years ago now, they did on the web, on the same website, World Snooker, as it was then, uh, Eurosport Prediction League with all the commentators around Europe. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I, I had a disaster. Every, I mean, I was like, talking about Crucible Curse, I was the biggest jinx ever. Everyone I tipped were going out in the first round. And, and I think I was last going into the World Championship, but thankfully I tipped Mark Selby. Who rescued my position a little bit, but even so, I'm not the best. I'm not the best record in tipping. I've got to say. So all the players that I've tipped, you, you know, you might think I'm being nice to you, but you might think again uh, come the next week or so. Anyway, next section uh, we have Kurt Mathlin uh, from Norway, of course. Matt Selt, they both played at the Crucible. Lee Walker's a former quarter finalist. We've got uh, Joe O'Connor uh, from Leicester. Alan Taylor as well, because he's got a big uh, challenge tour. A day coming up yes. next Monday. Uh, Sahil Vahidi, who, uh, again, I mentioned Phil Hay from the Metro last week. He's done an interview this week with Sahil Vahidi, which is terrific, actually. Again, he's talking about the difference between coming from Iran and playing snooker and, and being from the UK. And he talks about living in Darlington and he talks about John Higgins and all sorts of things. Anyway, so they're, they're the main players in this section. I, I found this actually the hardest to choose. I was I was slightly leaning towards Lee, Walk, Lee Walker because his style of play can sort of grind people down. In the end, though, I've just edged towards Matt Silt. Yeah, I mean, Fahidi's another one who could just give us a bit of a chance to uh, getting through from the first round. He'd be expected to beat Alan Taylor. If he did, he'd play Lee Walker, who's one of the lowest of the seeded players in that round, as it were. Uh, but I still won't quite go for Fahidi. I, I, it's a close call, actually, between Selt and Mufflin. I'm actually just going to give it to Mafflin, actually. He's been there before and almost beat Selby five years ago. Uh, he's someone who a lot was expected of when he was very young. Hasn't happened for him, really, in anything like the way we would have expected. But in some respects, his best snooker has actually played quite a late stage in his career, i.e. the last few years. So uh, just uh, edging it for him. OK, we've got two more little sections to go. The next one, the uh, Anwen Bo, Luca Brussel. Fogel O'Brien, Rod Lawler, Alfie Burden, all players who played at the Crucible. It could be Lawler v O'Brien in round two, which <laughs> which will be a, which would be a match that could possibly still be going, you know, this time next year. Um, I think a lot of people though looking at it are kind of looking to the the final round. Brussel v Liang Wenbo seems a, a logical final match. Brussel obviously championship league winner, although they're, they're all short matches. So to what extent you can read his, into his form there in terms of the qualifiers, I don't know. 
I've actually given it Leanne Wembo. I think uh, he always seems to obviously he nearly had the two maximums a couple of years ago there. He always seems really pumped up at the qualifiers. Doesn't always qualify, having said that. But, um, mm. you know, he's one of those players, he, he, he will be motivated, certainly. And again, you know, it, it, I mean, he, he's, he actually lives in the UK. He's different to the Chinese players. But, you know, for, for the Chinese contingent this year, it's a slightly different event. So I'm just edging towards him, but only just. Uh, normally, of course, they start the qualifying on a Wednesday. This year, it's starting on a Tuesday. I can confirm there's no truth to the rumour that they're starting a day early to allow for the possibility of an O'Brien Lawler match, <laughs> uh, which could go on for all eternity. Um, yeah, close call between Brussels and Leanne for me. Just going to give it to Brussels. And I suppose, in honest, it's on very simple logic that obviously he's been in, having just won the Championship League. There's a limit you can read into that. But I'm just edging it for him. But again, won't be any surprise at all if Fliang makes it through. And of course, as we know, he's done very well at Crucible in the past, having been quarter finalist 12 years now. Yeah, and uh, final section. There's one very dangerous player here in the first round, Robin Hull. Of course, yeah. former pro from Finland, has had a lot of health issues. But, you know, you wouldn't want to play him in the qualifiers. He's got a lot of, uh, you know, nafs and, and tablecraft. Uh, he's in there. We've got Robbie Williams, who uh, actually has had a pretty good record at the qualifying over the years. And the big two are Ali Carter, twice runner-up, and Alan McManus, who was a semi-finalist, let's not forget, just four years ago. And uh, people might accuse me of bias because I'm a friend of his, but I have gone for Alan McManus. One of the reasons is I know for a fact he would have been practising. You know, he's been able to practise and he would have been assiduously going in. That's not to say Ali Carter won't have been, but I think Alan will be ready for the qualifiers. And, you know, why not? He's uh, he's still a fantastic player. He's got all that knowledge. Um, so I'm going for Alan McManus. Danger players here. You know, you mentioned Hull there. Williams is a good player. Heathcote is someone who I think is going to do a lot. And, you know, we, we mentioned uh, back 1993 when there were all those surprise qualifiers. And a lot of that was down to the unusual form that year because the qualifiers mm. were basically played in September. A lot of players have played their way in. And you have to factor in here that none of these guys in the qualifiers played a ranking tournament match for more than four months. So when these guys, the higher seeded are coming in for them it'll be the first time they've played a ranking event since at least march and they'll be up against people who have had a match or two to play their way into it so you got to have things like that in mind and that could make the likes of heathcote and williams quite dangerous in the end though just because he is who he is and he's such a good player i'm just going to shade it for carter but yeah i wouldn't be at all surprised if mcmanus get there one last time as well but i will pick carter I think, yeah, I think, you know, I think what we've both done, what everyone's done who's, who's predicted is it's going to be a mix of established players, a, a few sort of middle rankers and hopefully a few newcomers as well, a few debutants. So looking down the list, we've agreed on seven players and on nine players we've differed. Um, but I think on a lot of cases, it's come down to a call between a couple of them. There will be, I'm sure, surprise qualifiers as well. It, it all um, kicks off next Tuesday and uh, just to reiterate, it's four rounds, the first three best of 11. The reason for that is because it's just to get fewer people in the venue every day. And then the last round will be best of 19, played over two days. It's live on Eurosport. It's also live on Matchroom Live. This is the new portal that uh, Matchroom have set up. That's outside of Europe, basically outside of countries that can get Eurosport. So if you live, for example, James Cook, travelling around America, um, if he signs up to Matchroom Live, can watch it on there. Uh, it's it's a different form of snooker, as I say. It's um, It's... 
all about getting to the crucible, but also there's tour survival going on. And Matt Hewitt will be doing his daily blog and updates on the, the WPBC website. Um, it's still the World Championship. This is the thing. It's never been on TV before. I know a lot of people do go and watch. This is as much the World Championship as the Crucible. It's part of the same tournament, and uh, players will be very proud walking out there on the first day, getting us underway. So I'm I'm looking forward to it, and you'll be you'll be glued to it, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically become a four week now. Uh, mm. and it has been for a few years, and it's all in one city. And basically, you have eight days of the qualifying. Then now it's a, an extra day this time. But normally what happens is you then have the draw the next day. You then have the media day after that. And then, of course, the championship itself. So by the time it finishes, it's all been going on for about four weeks. And, you know, we talk about some players are involved from the very start right through to near the end. But a lot of these officials and media people, they're involved literally, you know, nonstop for the four weeks, whatever the results and uh it really is quite a slog but more than ever now the fact that it's television it'll be interesting to see now because i think it's going to be a big hit i think it's a fantastic uh, set of audience figures throughout i wonder you know everything is all these new things i suppose that have been seen as a one-off but i wonder could it be such a success qualifiers may end up being shown every year from now and then it really does become a genuine uh, full event so gonna be interesting to see and you might not see the greatest snooker in a lot of the matches, but you'll see fascinating stuff. And there's so much at stake with these players. A lot of them have had no opportunity really to earn for the last number of months. So even from that point of view, it's a big deal. Tour survival is huge. And, you know, when you see players who are looking to get one last hurrah at the Crucible or who are looking to get there for the first time, you really see how it affects their play. And I always hark back to that frame between Fergal O'Brien and Dave Gilbert three years ago. It was one of the most fascinating, intriguing frames of snooker I've ever watched, just because you knew how it meant to the players involved, and it was so evident in the way they were playing. So I think people are going to be in for a real eye-opener as to what the qualifiers are really like and they tune in from next Tuesday. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, we've named all those names, but I'm sure there will be uh, some surprises along the way as well. So that's it for this week. Uh, we all seem to be apologising on this podcast. I think the sound quality has been variable. It may be that, my, I don't know, sometimes you hear it back, it's okay, but it seemed to me Michael's cutting out a few times. Um, hopefully you got the gist of it. Next week, uh, Wi-Fi permitting, and also... Um, someone getting back to me permitting i will be talking to michael elkin he's the director of a new snooker based film called break now what's this morning the uh, reviews are embargoed till next week so i can't really say anything about it other than the fact it stars uh, in cameo roles as themselves liang wimbo jack lazowski and ken doherty and he also stars Rutger Hauer. So it's quite a mixed field in terms of uh, in front of the camera. Um, hopefully, as I say, we'll be able to arrange this next week. If not, then I guess we'll be back again. But uh, what I'm saying is there's probably not a lot of point people emailing their predictions because by the time Michael and myself are back in two weeks' time, because the qualifying will be over, and what we're going to do is on the Wednesday... Uh, when they, after they make the draw, we're going to go through the first round draw. So that'll be in a couple of weeks' time. But as I say, hopefully next week we'll be talking about the snooker film. You can get in touch with us though, at any point about anything uh, through our email, which is snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, so that is kind of it for this week. Um, unless you've got anything else to say? No, I, I, I just can't wait to find out who wins the uh, the Dave Tyndall fight. Well, indeed. I mean, that's, again, that's... that's that's uh, that's something we're going to have to wait two weeks to find out. Uh, I'm now getting feedback on my ears, so I think that's that's God's way of telling me to stop this. So I'm going to stop this. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will be back, hopefully, in some form or other next week. 
Sports Social Podcast Network.